Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writing Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it, and you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books, and producing films and television shows. There are almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also offers certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events, nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Or you can visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers and check them out on Facebook and Twitter as well. This is a writing program. You can learn how to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a voice in the mental wilderness. This is you quietly having a word with yourself. My guest today is Rosecrans Baldwin. He is a founder of The Morning News. He is the author of multiple books, the most recent of which is a memoir called Paris, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down. It is about his messy, erotically charged relationship with tabloid princess and millionaire heiress Paris Hilton. Uh, Actually, that's not true. That's a joke. Uh, the book is about the time that Rosecrans and his wife lived in France and how they moved there after he had spent much of his childhood and young adulthood as a devoted Francophile, uh, romanticizing French culture and Paris in particular. And then, of course, it happened. It unfolded. He actually got a job over there, gainful employment, a work permit, uh, all of it. And he and his wife moved over there. And that's when fantasy suddenly met reality, as it sometimes happens. 
And uh, this new memoir, which is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, is a really deft account of that experience. Uh, and so Rosecrans and I are going to be talking about all of it, as well as some other things, in just a little bit. Uh, I should mention that I myself actually spent a summer in Paris in my early 20s. And uh, I think I may have touched upon this before in earlier episodes of the program. And uh, it sort of underscores the opening bit at the beginning of every show where you hear me say uh, over the theme song, uh, every stupid thing that a writer can do, I have done. Uh, that is not a lie. Uh, among the many stupid things that I've done in my life, uh, I, you know, or it wasn't a stupid thing to do, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, I moved to Paris uh, when I was a young man acting out some sort of tired, lost generation fantasy and I barely spoke a word of French. I thought I was going to write a novel. I thought I might uh, meet some French women. I thought I might find some sort of job. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing. So naturally, I did everything that you would expect someone like me would do. Uh, I went to Shakespeare and Company. And uh, I remember feeling awkward and not knowing what to say. And uh, I was looking for some kind of literary community. Uh, and when I walked in, I remember George Whitman was sitting there. And at that point, I guess he would have been in his late 80s. And uh, he actually just died last year uh, at the ripe old age of 98. But uh, yeah, he was there and I walked in and I was eating. And I'll never forget this. Uh, he was eating a roasted chicken and it was wrapped in tinfoil. And, and now it's occurring to me that maybe I've talked about this before. I can't remember. But uh, anyway, he's sitting there and he's eating a roasted chicken and it's wrapped in tinfoil. And uh, I wanted to say something to him and strike up some sort of conversation and uh, enmesh myself elegantly into the literary expat scene but of course he was very old and very focused on this chicken and he wasn't very interested in talking to me and so uh, i started browsing the store trying to act normal and inoffensive and i remember being distracted because george whitman was eating this chicken very loudly and uh, and like sucking <laughs> the chicken bones at a very high volume and it was not pleasant and it was a little bit odd and after enduring this for roughly 15 minutes I just sort of left Shakespeare and Company, and uh, that sort of encapsulates how my, my summer in Paris went. And, uh, you know, I did keep journals while I was there, and I saved copies of letters that I wrote while I was there, and I also saved all the notes that I took, like, like little creative scribblings about the, uh, the novel, the doomed novel that I was supposedly working on while I was there. Uh, and so uh, I actually have some excerpts here from uh, those writings. And I have formulated these excerpts into chronological order. They are some quick snippets that I will now read to you uh, that will uh, synopsize the summer that I spent in Paris in its entirety from start to finish. Okay, so here goes. Shitty hotel at the top of Rue Montagne Saint-Genevieve. Shower essentially a sink. Have to climb up into it. Just fell off the wagon. First cigarette in 97 days. It has now become clear that everything is unclear. A short story about a highly dysfunctional hippie living in Austin has a pit bull, drops acid with pit bull, chaos ensues. Listening to French tapes, mumbling on the metro. Possible title, The Lameness. Mild panic attack in the Bastille, sudden vision of future. The oddity of a man who somehow decides that from now on, he's just going to wear a white suit all the time. Alone, riding the Ferris wheel in the Tuileries. <laughs> Protagonist having trouble defining self in the modern age. 
Have I suffered enough to be interesting? I think I just figured out what my problem is. A comedy dialogue between a nun and a priest involving the word lay people. Possible themes, Buddhism, wifelessness, loneliness, fame. Must develop Zen fearlessness of beekeeper. Who the fuck am I and what am I trying to say? Running out of money, impossible not to spend. Let the story find you. Don't attempt to find the story. The fact that Balzac sounds like Balsack. Five days left, numb, wandering, aimless, American. The inevitability of disintegration, the death of all noble dreams. Bonne chance. Au revoir. So that's it. That was my summer in Paris. Uh, and I should mention that I turned 24 that summer. And I remember clearly on my 24th birthday, I was having breakfast, a late breakfast alone at a cafe near the Sorbonne, uh, all by myself, you know, as was usually the case that summer. And I'm sitting there reading uh, my International Herald Tribune or whatever it was, and a pigeon shat upon me on my head and on my shoulder. It was a voluminous excretion. And uh, I was right there in the middle of my meal and I had to take a napkin and kind of wipe myself off. And uh, I remember there were two very attractive young French girls at a, at a nearby table, probably in college, probably attending the Sorbonne. And I remember as I sat there, they were laughing at me uh, and I didn't speak French well enough to, to sort of respond with anything good, which, uh, you know, rendered me idiotic and uh, one dimensional or whatever. And so I remember uh, getting up and walking away shortly thereafter, uh, walking down the Boulevard Saint-Michel and uh, trying to convince myself that it was good luck to get uh, shat on by a bird on your birthday and that this episode must mean something magical and that I must have some sort of amazing year ahead of me. Uh, as opposed, of course, to seeing the obvious truth, which was that a pigeon defecated on my shoulder and two attractive French girls laughed at me. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for 
Well, it is uh, it is my real name. It is my dad's name. It was his dad's name. And then before that, it was either my great-grandmother or my great-great-grandmother's maiden name. And she didn't want to lose it when she married a Baldwin, so she kind of went boy named Sue and handed it down to her son, who then decided to inflict that upon the next generation and so on. I gotcha. No, because it sounds like a name like from that comes down through the ages. Like I was immediately thinking, like, this family came over on the Mayflower. Something happened here. Uh, I, is there a good, like, do you have, like, a good family history? I don't know about that. Um, I don't think our family history is that, you know, like, sort of Yankee Tony. I do know that the name originally is Norwegian, um, which gets into sort of there's some Hamlet crossover there, but it means wreath of roses, which I've always thought is a nice image. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, it's good for meeting people and, you know, sort of being called by ro- called by most everyone Rosencrantz the first time I meet them. <laughs> it's kind of there's some weird, like, default, like, that's your go-to is to stick an N in the middle of it. Um but, you know, when I go to get takeout, I just give my name as John because otherwise, like, what the fuck? Like, why even go through it, you know? Yeah, no, I was going to say, I was going to say, like, when you were a kid, because I have, you know, we named my daughter Evan. And uh, that's like, sure. you know, it's a boy's name for a girl. No, but that's cool. I think so. And, and you yeah. know, but, but you never know. And, and then I think about, like, how the kids might treat her. Like, oh, no, 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 no. I think for girls, it's very cool. I think girls having boys named, fantastic. You know, she's going to have character. She'll probably have a lot of wit. She'll kind of be tough, you know, but also, you know, she's still a girl. A boy, you know, with a girl's name. I mean, my parents, when I was growing up, they always listed me as Crans, not Rosecrans, in the school directories. So that I would like, like the picking on and the beating up would be, you know, <laughs> cut in half. <laughs> um, but then, so I went by Crans for a long time. And then I met my wife at a party in New York. And she was like, is that short for something? And I said, yeah, it's short for Rosecrans. She said, oh, I like that. And, I mean, literally about a month later, you can draw a line in my life from the people who knew me before that date who call me Kranz and the people who know me afterward who call me Rosecrans. Okay, okay, so it was your wife who did it. Oh, you know, she, yeah, she definitely, she gave me the balls to go by my own name, which is pathetic, but, you know, <laughs> that's what it took. Hey, you know, behind every great man, you know. Is there... <laughs> exactly. How about behind every mediocre dude? <laughs> right. <laughs> There's this hot chick who was into him for some reason and uh, has, you know, pulled him up out of the gutter. Uh, indeed. And so, now, uh, were you, are you from the South? No. I am from, so I was born in Chicago, which is where both my parents are from. Um, we, My dad worked his way up as a furniture salesman. He now runs a sort of a textile import business. But he was a furniture salesman in the beginning at a department store and then got a job traveling around the South, so we moved to Nashville. I lived there for a little while. Then he got a job in New York City, so he uh, bought a house in the suburbs in Connecticut. My parents really wanted me to grow up like, you know, sort of Norman Rockwell, um, and so we, I grew up in Darien, Connecticut, which is southwest Connecticut, um, and then eventually like moved around a little bit. And but my wife is from North Carolina originally, and that's why how we came to be in Chapel Hill now. Okay, no, because I can hear a little North Carolina. I have a lot of friends from North Carolina, and I'm really good at picking up that accent. I hear like a slight bit of it. 
Yeah, that's an, that's probably an affectation. Oh dear. <laughs> no, I mean it's like just, just it's, for this interview, right? Yeah, I was just like, I'm gonna do the nervous breakdown. How should I come across? Let's go southern, <laughs> just just a bit, just a little bit that I'm just gonna put into the interview. Uh, I also have that. I mean, I don't know if you do this, but I have that bad habit where if I'm around someone who has an accent different from my own, I will. Like just mock, not mock it, but I will adopt it. Okay, like no, right then. No, this without is, knowing I'm doing it. Yeah, no, this is and this this is a great uh, opportunity for an elegant segue. Oh yeah, uh, because I do this. I do this when I'm in a foreign country. Right. And uh, I can. I do only, this at my Polish dry cleaner. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I mean, and not only this. This is the oddity, though. I'll be in a foreign country. Let's say France. And uh, I'll be uh, ordering at a restaurant, and I will be speaking English with what I imagine is a French accent for God knows what reason. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I've done that. Yeah. I'm like, what? And then I catch myself, and I'm like, why am I speaking English with a French accent as if that's going to help? Yeah, you're doing no one a favor. No you're one. making everything worse. Everything. So Because the person listening to you who probably speaks English perfectly fine thinks that you're making fun of them um, <laughs> by doing their accent badly. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, I don't think any kid who grew up, you know, if Monty Python was within 500 feet and they were the right kind of kid to appreciate it, can now go to the UK without once trying on, like, you know, an English accent in front of someone British. Yeah, and yeah. that I'm sure that always goes over great, you know. It's embedded, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so, so yes, I, I, did, I did that the exact same way all the time in France. The only difference is, is so... I lived there for about 18 months, and, and you over know, and time... We should, and we should say, I hate to interrupt, but I mean, we should say, this yeah. is what your book is about. This is the memoir. Totally. It's about your time in Paris. That's and, right. And uh, you went over there for a job, correct? Yeah. So the book is called Paris, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down, uh, which hopefully says everything you need to know about the book. Um, but I got a job, moved over there, and should I give you the summary? Would that help? Yeah, sure, Look, sure. I'll do the summary. Here it is. So uh, 2007, I, my wife and I were looking to move abroad. Email came out of the blue from a guy I used to work with saying he needed a writer who could move to Paris and produce copywriting for an advertising agency in English, but speak enough French that he could go to meetings and, you know, make your deadlines. And I said, oh, sure, I speak French, which was, you know, true in as much as probably you speak French and the 5 million people who listen to this podcast speak French, which is that you took the classes through high school, you know, got a B minus and sort of figured that, you know, you were probably better than you actually were. Um, but I went over to Paris. I got the job interview. I got the job. And then we moved over only about three months later. So the book is about moving to France with all kinds of sort of ridiculous romantic notions about what life in Paris should be like and kind of just slamming headfirst into what life in Paris really is like, uh, especially when you don't speak the language very well. Yeah. And so this, you know, and this sort of, uh, breaks my heart because I'm one of those people, <laughs> I, I romanticize it. You know, it's impossible. I mean, yeah. it's not impossible, but for me and for people like you and, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people listening, it, it's, it's so irresistible to think of it as having, yeah. uh, you know, a higher quality of life and things are better over there and people yeah. sit, sit around in cafes. And like what I always notice when I travel is like, I'll be like, man, everyone's smoking and they're so good looking. Like you can smoke, you know, like right. it's, it's okay. Like you can convince yourself of all these different things. And, um, you know, well, the good thing about the smoking is it does make them thinner. 
you right. know, and smarter and more well-read and stylish. Yes. You know, <laughs> it, they've got all those things going for them. I mean, you know, French women not only don't get fat, but the sex is great. Their parenting is effortless. Uh, you know, the, the it's fashion, incredible what they can do. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the children are all cute and, like, dressed it, like impeccably and, you know, sailing, sailing boats in the, uh, you know, the pond at Luxembourg oh, yeah. Gardens and the whole thing. I don't, you know, I don't know when they find the time to do anything else. Um, <laughs> there are so few topics that Americans, you know, can feel bad about themselves on. There's so many topics Americans can feel bad about themselves on when compared to the French. Um, you know, like if you even the slightest, you know, have an enjoyment of life, the French are enjoying it more. <laughs> and whatever topic you choose, do it. You know, they're doing it better. Uh, but you know, uh, the hopefully the readers. You know, we'll put down the book and see actually that it's a pretty uplifting tale that is not just because um, going there, times were tough, you know, life was difficult in my job. But over the course of those 18 months, and even, you know, once we got past the time when there was construction on all six sides of our apartment, like literally, if you had a Rubik's Cube and put a drill into every single face of it. That was what it was like. Um, but by the end of it, we had really discovered sort of a Paris of our own and just, you know, loved the hell out of it, like back to the way I did before I moved there, but on entirely new sort of non-cliche, you know, reasons that had everything to do with the people we got to know there. So, you know, it's Paris, I love you, but you're bringing me down. But, you know, at the end of it, it actually is bringing me up. Or the, That's an awkward metaphor, and that doesn't reference an LCD sound system at all. So, you know, I don't think that works. <laughs> so now, as far as like uh, loving and being a Francophile, because, you know, it feels like to me the, the majority of Americans or what you see a lot in the popular media is sort of anti-French. There's like this natural rivalry uh, for, right. for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, or maybe they are, but I just don't get it. I think it's so, sort of lame. But, um, you know, it, for a guy... To, to talk about how much he loves France, you know, there's something decidedly uh, feminine about France, and, and I count myself among uh, right. people who love French culture. Like, I think it's great, right. um, but you know, it's not like there's nothing macho about it. Like, did you I, like what do you what do you think about all that? And did that factor in in your mind at all? It, you know, it does a little bit, um, and then either uh, God, I'm really going to screw this up, which is pathetic because this is on the record, but either. We published this story on the morning news, or I read it somewhere else. Uh, and I think we published it. Actually, I'm positive we published it. But now on the, on the hot seat, I can't remember. But let's say we did. We published a story about basically how the world, you know, with all the berets and the baguettes and the cigarette smoking and Sartre, the world has decided that France is just a bunch of um, – I don't know, surrender monkeys that eat cheese and, you know, have good sex when they're not working. When, in fact, if you look at modern and, you know, sort of more distant future, France is a country of marauding, murdering fuckheads. There is a history in France of great military might and incredible, you know, slaughter. Like, they just went out and colonized and raped and pillaged and brutalized the hell out of a lot of the world you know, some of which, you know, still have people who speak French. So it's unfortunately like, you know, if you watch Midnight in Paris, like it's pretty sort of fay to be French, you know, if you go by the cliches. But there is a great history of France 
sort of macho um, homicidal culture that is being ignored. <laughs> right, which Americans should appreciate. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's, it's unfair to the French yeah. to, to, to say that they're all pansies just because, you know, Kevin Klein at one point had a mustache and, you know, had a funny accent. Right. Um, it's, not, it's just not fair. Well, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, you know, truthfully, I grew up, my mom put me in an after school French class like in fourth grade, and I just loved it. Like, I loved it because it was exotic and it was different, and it was strange to be talking, you know, in the funny talk um, and sort of learning about a different place. I mean, I was stuck in the suburbs and hating it, and France was this amazing thing where if you liked the ideas of art, if you liked ideas in general, if you were into eating and smoking and, you know, going after girls and watching movies like that's all they seem to do all the time <laughs> you know so why wouldn't you want to live there if you weren't content with where you were at and i was not content so france was like you know everyone has you know that dream of where they'd like to end up and france just happened to be mine for a very long time okay so you said you were not content in the suburbs and that your mom put you into this after school french class when you were what in fourth grade you said fourth grade so and fourth you... grade is you know what like 10 years old 11 i have no idea yeah, somewhere yeah. there, nine ten years old so yeah. Already you were you were a malcontent in the suburbs at that age? Um, well, I don't know. I was a pretty like happy-go-lucky kid. Uh, I think basically, you know, fourth grade, that's probably too young for me to be malcontent. Um, I think it was like, you know, middle school that just sucked. Um, and that just, you know, I just didn't, no one, no one loved me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go cry when I get home from school and go back to my Dragonlance books. But you know, I don't. I wasn't exactly. You know, I wasn't a miserable kid, and I had a very happy childhood. So I've got. I've, I would be insane to complain about anything. I think I was just sort of standard. You know, your ten years old angst, um, and it just happened to be that. You know, I was stuck in the suburbs at the time. So I, in other words, there's no special case here. Um, but we, you know, we would, for example, fifth grade. No, let's say seventh grade. Seventh grade French class. We are watching a movie one day. And it's a French movie. This is like in class, you know, like the teacher brought us, you know, this is a special educational moment. It's this movie that's called La Boom. And there's this moment I talk about in the book where you're watching the movie. There's a bunch of French teenagers who have gone to the movies, boys and girls. And this kid sits down, um, and this is, actually, I think this came out before Diner. I just want to point that out right now. But this kid sits down and takes a popcorn box, you know, pops a hole in the bottom, shoves it on his wiener, so that the girl sitting next to him will stick her hand in the popcorn and jerk him off. And we're sitting there, you know, daring <laughs> Connecticut, watching this while Madame Anastasio, you know, is sort of like, you know, in the back of the room not paying attention, being like, holy fuck, did you just see this? Because that was, you know, stranger than anything any of us could come up with. I mean, we were still all trying to figure out what a blowjob was because some kids said it involved a vacuum cleaner, and you're like, oh, it does? Okay, I'll pretend that's what it is. You know, just don't pick on me. Uh, anyway, so, you know, exotic, strange, and, you know, hand jobs. Yeah, see, so, I would have liked French, too. That's a good, uh, <laughs> that's a good intro. Yeah. So, okay, so, yeah, you, and you seem like, you know, uh, just listening to you, you don't seem like somebody who would have been, like, like excessively angsty. So you had, a pretty, no, no, no. you had a pretty good childhood, and you just had a, but you had a sense of the larger world. Uh, totally. And do you think, I mean, how much of that was... Uh, innate and uh, you know maybe a result uh, a result of just like what you were uh, taking in 
uh, via books and television? And then how much of it do you really attribute uh, specifically to the fact that you were taking French? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, was that really? Yeah, the, I know what you're saying. Was that the scope I mean, of your uh, the scope of the outside world to you? Was it limited to France, or did you have a, a real curiosity, you know, about other places too? Yeah, no, it was definitely other places. I mean, I remember in middle school and in high school. You know, I was sort of floating around between different crowds um, and not really attaching too well to any of them. I mean, I was in the AV club, but I was also in marching band. I was also the Eagle Scout. Like, I just was sort of like a do-gooder, um, you know, and I had crazy, poofy hair. Like, I, I don't know, you know, I, <laughs> looking back at myself, I don't find myself interesting at all. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, the sort of the vanilla kid. Um, but, you know, the outside world was mostly through books and movies, and it wasn't just France. It was really just about anything that was sort of outside myself, because I didn't know who I was, you know, and I was sort of into art and really into books, into writing, but those things weren't cool. So, you know, it seemed like, you know, the way to escape, you know, and not think about myself and all the shit, you know, around me was just, you know, sort of everything outside of it. So, you know, whether it's like going to New York City, you know, with my dad, because he worked in the city, he'd take the train every day, or it'd be like, I mean, I went, I got to go abroad. My dad took me to London one time in high school, and that was just, you know, amazing, like blow the doors off, you know, really to see what other people are like. Uh, so it wasn't always France. Just France was part of it because that was, I was taking French classes. My mom really liked France. And we did go on a family vacation at one point. Um, and that was the first time I'd really been, uh, first time I'd been out of the country besides Canada. Uh, and that's, you know, went to Paris, and it was just unbelievable. And, and how old were you then for this first trip? At that point, I was in, I think I was in seventh grade. Um, and that was, you know, at that point, my eyes were really open because there were so many things that were strange and interesting. But I spoke a little bit of French from, you know, classes. Like I could say, bonjour and comment allez-vous. And so my parents relied on me as their translator, you know, which was a bad idea because I was, you know, I didn't want to be translator at all. I was like, no way, I'm trying to fit in. Don't you know I'm French? <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone, you Americans. Stop following me. Yeah, no, isn't that weird, though? Like, uh, you, you want to, you know, even as an adult, I'm sort of that way. Like, I just don't want to be noticed. I want to, totally. like, you know, I'll even, like, dress. Like, this is, I've talked about this before on this show, I think, but, like, when I go to another country, uh, and if they have, like, a, a, a way of dressing, like, in, in yeah. Paris, they dress a little bit more formally than they do in Los Angeles, where I live. Right. And, so, like, I'll go over there and I'll be like, okay, so, like, I should probably dress up a little bit more just so people don't notice me. Like, I don't ever want to be noticed. <laughs> Absolutely true. I, no, no, totally. I did the exact same thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, I do the same thing now. And, like, the fucking worst part is when you get somewhere and you don't have the right shit. Yeah. You're like, oh, God, I have to go to H&M and shop whatever they're shopping because I don't look like them. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, what is yeah. that? What is that? Like, why can't I just be myself? Like, why can't I just go over there and just, like, own who I am. Like, why do I suddenly need to like morph into like this other culture? I'm telling you, Brad, when you figure that out, please tell me (laughs) because like I was, the trouble was too, is that I also think I'm a little bit clueless on this matter because my idea of how you're supposed to dress when you're a man in a big city is like leftover from reading too many Graham Greene books. Right. You know, so like my thinking is like, I have to be wearing a trench coat at all times and like, you know, decent pants and shoes. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, everyone in Paris dresses pretty cool, and I look like like this overgrown Tintin who's you know wandering <laughs> around as if it's about to thunderstorm. Right. Um, which got me all kinds of like I got made fun of a lot in Paris for that. Um, there was one meeting I had. So I'm working at the advertising firm, and one of our uh, accounts uh, was sort of connected to Sofia Coppola, 
And so we had a meeting with Sofia Coppola. And I spent like a fucking hour trying to figure out what to wear. That, so Sofia Coppola would think I'm cool, right? <laughs> so now there are all kinds of dilemmas involved in that statement. Because if Sofia Coppola were to learn that someone coming to meet her had spent an hour deliberating on how to impress her and make her think that they hadn't spent any time at all thinking about what they were going to wear, when to meet her, they're obviously not cool. So, you know, that probably came out. I mean, I showed up looking like a dude in a trench coat with sneakers. You know, I don't, you know, so like in the end, I couldn't come up with anything. So <laughs> I did look like myself. So wait, are you doing this thing? Because I do this every once in a while. Like, especially if I'm going somewhere and it's making me a little nervous like this. Like, yeah. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get ready. And then, yeah. I'll, and then I'll just stand there and I'll start looking at myself in the mirror. And then I'll be like, I can't fucking wear this. And I'll, I'll have to go back to the closet and like. I'll start, yeah. I'll start like compulsively changing outfits, which sounds ridiculous, but this happens every once in a while. I, I know exactly what you're saying. I, I, I don't do it so much, but that's only because, and I want to point out, the fact that you do that and I do what I'm about to tell you points out that we are exactly the type of guys who grow up loving France. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, no, it's um, just like, you know what it is? It's just like, uh, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Like, it, it's always a social occasion that requires... Uh, some level of formality or something, or if I'm confused about how I'm supposed to look, right? That is what freaks me out. It's like, oh wait, do we do I have to wear a suit? Is this the right suit? Like I don't, cause right. I, don't I don't have a natural fashion instinct. You know, I don't have that at all. Yeah, I have reached a point where I have identified certain things that can be used in almost any situation, and I still feel comfortable and you know, sort of like that. I look like myself, so I now have. Like, I'm fucking Steve Jobs, but, you know, it's like at some point, you know, Steve Jobs decided to dress a little bit, you know, sort of preppier. So, like, I've got, like, a pair of khakis, a pair of black khakis, and a pair of jeans. Like, that's all I need. And then there's three different kinds of shirts, and I have multiple copies of them. And the, I'm really trying to find the right jacket. I'm still stuck on the jacket because Neat. I retired my trench coat after a while of seeing pictures of myself wearing trench coats. Um, <laughs> and I need something new. But otherwise, I'm, I'm doing really good on everything else. I think I've got one blazer that you can, you know, you can be a, a dude in a restaurant or go to a funeral, you know, or go to a Johnny Cash, you know, tribute concert. Right. Like, all that's covered. Right. Well, no, it's weird because, like, you know, you say the Steve Jobs thing and it makes me think of, like, you know, there are people, and I'm, I'm sort of one of them. I mean, like, yeah, I wear a hoodie a lot just because, like, I'm writing or whatever, and it's a little, you know, I have a T-shirt on, and I just wear a hoodie. But it, I Stay think, away from Florida. Stay away from, oh, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I, I bet that's a big problem for you. Yeah, it's huge, you know, constantly. But, uh, no, but I, I, you know who, I, for whatever reason, Jay Leno springs to mind because he wears, like, a denim shirt and jeans yep. when he's not on his show all the time. Every day, like, OCD wears right. the exact same thing. And I'm not there, you know, I'm not, that's not me at all. But like, I think Steve Jobs was sort of that way. And like, right. you know, is it, I guess the question is, is it obsessive compulsive disorder or is it just like, I, I can't think about this. Like I can, I, you I know, can sort of understand the surrender, you know? I, I think it's something to do with surrender. But then I read something this morning that just terrified my pants off. Um, this new article in Rolling Stone, I don't know if you've seen this, about the frat boys at Dartmouth. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's fucking a nightmare. It just shows the worst degrees that you know rich, powerful people uh, can reach when they are given all the time and alcohol they need to torture one another. Uh, so it's about these kids in a frat and the extremes of hazing that go on. And it gets really, really disgusting with bodily fluids that I won't subject your audience to. But there's one point 
where they're talking about this kid who's like the vilest of the bunch. And they're saying that he wears button-down blue Oxford shirts and uh, Nantucket red pants. And he, he calls them, or someone else calls them, fuck you clothes or fuck you fashion. As in like, hey world, don't worry, I will win at the end of the century. At the end of my life, I will have won, you will have lost, and screw you along the way. Now, I don't, you know, I don't have any, well, I used to have a blue Oxford button down. I think I threw it away recently because it was getting ratty. I don't have any red pants right now, but, like, I'm thinking, here's a uniform, and this is what the uniform says. So what does your uniform say about you, and what does my uniform say about me? I'm not sure. Yeah. But, I, you know, I, I really hope it's not, you know, fuck you, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to go eat an omelet, you know, made out of, actually, I shouldn't get into that. That's the end of the disgusting part. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what my I don't know what my outfit says. I think my outfit just says like please do not notice this. Please just let this be right. appropriate and you know, let me blend. Right, exactly. But I, I think yeah, I think mine hopefully says something about um, please look elsewhere. Yeah, right, yeah. Kind of the same <laughs> thing. Kind of the same thing. And you know, but I, I, do you ever find yourself fascinated cuz I do and I and I say this not in a, with any kind of uh uh, negativity, but there are people in the world who love to get noticed by, for what they wear. Like they oh, yeah. love to put on some sort of outfit and go out and uh, stand out in the crowd. Yep. And I like. Do you ever find yourself like a, a um, flabbergasted? Envying those people? Yeah, envying, and also I'm also like stunned. Like, how could you possibly do that? You know? Right. Right. I I tend to side if it came down to the end of the world. And it was between the freaks and the non-freaks. I'm definitely on the freak side. You know, sort of like the young kid who's maybe like 13 and he's wearing fishnet stockings and makeup. I'm with that guy. Yeah. Like I, I am carrying him on my shoulders through the gates of hell. Right. Um, and <laughs> for example, I watch a lot of college basketball because I have become an ardent fan of the University of North Carolina basketball team. And we had this incredible point guard for the past two years named Kendall Marshall, who is a, quote, sneakerhead. So he's a big collector of sneakers. He has all these incredible Nikes. He spends all his, you know, whatever cash he has, he spends on sneakers. And he goes on Twitter and he shows off whatever sneakers he's looking at that day. And there are multiple times where I've gone in a store and been like, I'm going to buy those sneakers today. That's the Kendall Marshall sneaker from last week. And I can't do it. Because I, I know that if I bring them home, I will try them on or I'll leave them in the closet and think, oh, you can't go outside. Why would you wear those? Those aren't you. So the people who do know what they're all about and are flaunting it, um, you know, mad respect. The, you are my people, even though I don't look like that at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel the same way. And then, like, uh, you know, I, I also, you know, I kind of try to look to people like that sometimes to figure out, like, what I'm supposed to do. But, like, and, and not to take this too deeply into, like, right. the world of fashion. No, no, we've already done that. Yeah, this is, yeah. I mean, we're, this we're, is the whole podcast. Yeah. It's about yours and my <laughs> daily wardrobe. But this is fascinating. I'm talking to somebody else who has this. Like, when you – does it extend for you into clothes shopping? Is that, like, a stressful yes. experience for you because you don't know what to get? Not anymore. Not anymore. Um, now, you, now you know. I, I was I actually was talking to another friend of mine about this that because he had been through the same experience where we had found places that sell clothing that so consistently are the right price fit style comfort etc that we don't see the need to change ever again. Okay. So like basically I've got like a couple catalogs and I just buy clothes out of there once every seven years, and I'm done. I okay. mean I, there are occasionally I'll like add some new stuff to it you know more 
frequently than seven years. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not a lot. Okay, so what are your what are your go tos? Like, do you have like a, a label? <laughs> uh, will these companies send me free clothes afterward because I'm about to mention them? You never know. Do you have a hookup like that? It could happen. I love that. <laughs> Let's see if, if that could happen. I'm, I would get if I could be sponsored by an espresso machine. And um, what else? I don't know what else. But, you know, if Nespresso would sponsor me, I would wear, like, a sticker if I got free espresso out of it. Yeah. But, so, the clothing. Um, oh, well, uh, my brother-in-law just turned me on to pants from this website called Bonobos.com. Bonobos. I don't know how it's pronounced. Yeah, yeah, yeah like the, the, the chimpanzees. Like the, like, the, like the monkeys. Yeah. They, uh, they've got great monkey pants. Um so I recently got uh, three pairs of pants from them. I'm very satisfied with those. They fit great. Excellent. You know, and it's hard to find a pair of khakis that don't make you look like a preppy asshole or someone who's, you know, working, I don't know, in a shitty IT job where they, you know, they're a skater by night, but they have to wear pleated khakis by day. <laughs> the Dockers. The Dockers. Let's uh, just call them the Dockers. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so let's transition, shall we? Do you want to transition? Away from the pants? Away yeah, from the pants. We can do I yeah. think we've. I think we've covered it. I mean, unless you have something else you want to add. No, I'm good. I was actually starting to think of all the people that I've read about that have, like, their defined look. Like, there's a bit, uh, Philip Roth talks about how he settled on a look at one point. I think he was in his 40s, which was um, button-down shirt or sweater and khakis every day. And he would like he never would you know differ up because he just once he figured it out that worked for him. Yeah, um, and didn't want to think about it ever again. And I was watching sixty Minutes the other night, and uh, they were interviewing the the new uh, CEO of Chrysler and Fiat. Sure. And the guy wears a I think he wears a black sweater every day. Right. Kind of like Steve Jobs. It's like a weird thing. I don't know. And I think it's like a lot more common than people uh, you know want to. Want to admit, or people often. Yeah, I know. And then you look about. at, you know, you look at GQ or Esquire or you know whatever, and you see guys, and they look so cool, and they've got like a hundred bracelets on each arm, and you're like, <laughs> oh yeah, I should get a bracelet. <laughs> and I did that. We were over at my uh, my in-laws' house. My wife had a. This is about to get really pathetic. Uh, a basket of friendship bracelets she had made in like sixth grade. I literally was like putting one on my wrist. I was like, what do you think about this? <laughs> She looks at me, she's like, what are you doing with my friendship bracelet? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I will I will always be a poser if I try to do anything but, you know, whatever works for me, which just happens to be sort of modern-day Tintin. <laughs> All right, so uh, you are... Have we got time left? Can oh, we yeah. talk about something else in close? Oh, okay. yeah, we're gonna, yeah, we've got plenty of time. I want to talk about, uh, you know, you and your writing career. Uh, and I want to start, I guess, with like, I always ask writers this, but like, how early did you know that you were going to do this? Uh, like, when did it know, start? I mean, how can, how can we reliably or accurately answer that question? Um, it was early. It was early that I enjoyed writing. I mean, the idea that you could do this, that people did this, that books didn't just appear in the library, and this sounds trite or silly, but I, that honestly didn't click in for me until after college. Um, but as a kid growing up, my dad and my grandfather both wrote poetry. My grandfather was this, uh, I think pretty frustrated in life, uh, accountant who longed to be a poet and he would write what's called occasional poetry. So if someone had a birthday party or a wedding or an anniversary, he would write a poem for the event. Um, and it was always, there were a couple ideas. One 
you try to use the biggest words possible, but two, in the crudest fashion that you can get away with. So a lot of the poems are like about the, the hostess of the party, about like her ass and how nice her ass is, but you don't say ass or nice. You use something that has seven syllables. Right. Um, anyway, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of more stories that go along with that. But the point is, I grew up both with like writing being something that you did for fun and with a lot of books lying around. My parents, you know, they're not like super highbrow readers. They're just readers. And so they had a rule that if like we went to a bookstore, like they were pretty cheap otherwise, but I could get a book. Like they weren't going to say no in a bookstore. So I grew up just reading, you know, sci-fi and fantasy and literary stuff and whatever. And then in high school and college, writing was just something I was good at, something I enjoyed doing. Uh, but I was all poetry all the time. Um, I didn't start writing fiction until after college. I didn't take any fiction classes. Um, it was just, I always loved reading novels more than anything else. And when I left college, and I, for some reason, I'd get up in the morning before work, and I wasn't writing poetry, I was writing a novel. Uh, so it just went from there. But early on, I knew I loved writing. I didn't, you know, it wasn't that I thought I'm going to be a writer, but it was certainly fun and something that I, you know, just sort of found myself called to. And what about what about favorite writers? Like, was, was there a writer that really like clicked in your head when you were an adolescent and made you think like I want to I want to write like this person or be like live like this person? You, yeah, I mean, there were. I mean, the the honest answer is that which is not there's nothing like you know elite or highbrow about this, which I would love to say to say differently. But um, in I think maybe sixth grade, the guy who owned the local bookstore gave me a wonderful guy named Michael, gave me this book called Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Um, and it was the funniest book I'd ever read. I mean, I could not put it down. I reread it 14 times. Uh, so, you know, reading that, it had, it had nothing to do with like, oh, I want to be a writer and I want to write like this person. It was just more that that book was so freaking funny and so good and made me want to read it over and over uh, you know, you know, these days, if I was growing up, it could be Harry Potter that could have done the same thing for me. I mean, obviously, yeah, there's tons of writers afterward. When I started thinking of myself as a writer, um, that I start, I wanted to emulate. You know, uh, in college, I was a poet, so all I wanted to be was like the next straight Frank O'Hara. Um, <laughs> that that was my thing. If I could have gotten a job coming out of college at the Museum of Modern Art and like just spent the whole time writing poems on typewriters at lunch, I would have done it. Um, but and, and so where did you go to college? Uh, Colby College in Waterville, Maine. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, small school. I mean, like that's a tiny little school, right? Tiny school, tiny school. And yeah, you, little school. And you like major hundred students. Did you major in English or, or what, yeah. with a concentration in poetry? English major, um, concentration in creative writing, and all the creative writing I did was in poetry. Okay, wow. And so. Yeah. That's like yeah. That's a that's one of those degrees where when you get out, you're like you know, it's, it's not like, it's not like an engineering degree. I have a film studies degree, so I can I can relate. Yeah. You know, right? Yeah, no, no. I uh, I got an internship the summer before my senior year in college at a web design company in New York, and at that point, it was like dot com bubble was just starting, and they had tons of jobs and no one to fill them, and no one knew what they were doing. So I took like a class in college, like an after sort of like a supplemental like web design HTML class. Uh, I built myself two websites, and I graduated with a job. And I was a, working as a copy editor at a web design agency. 
Um, so I lucked out, man. I came, you know, into the work world right when people needed, when like a weird world needed workers. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that was because I that was like 1997, 1999. Oh, is that what it was? Okay, yeah. Because yeah. the, uh, you know, I have some friends who worked in technology, and they were, you know, this was like 97. They they went out, yeah, sure. like, went out to San Francisco in 98. Yep. and you know caught that wave and yep. it was just a dumb lucky time and of course i was like nowhere near it but i was and I was, also, I was also like a year behind uh those people and wasn't really experiencing any of that and so right. uh you know but it, it had the effect and i don't know if you felt this way too but it had the effect of being like oh this is just how things are like you get out of college and the economy's blowing up and things are good, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is how it's supposed to work. Yeah, you know, we're in America. Yeah, and um, now we know. My that's parents not the just case. paid X amount of money for college. Of course, I should get a job. I mean, I, you know, I, the people who that I know now that are just coming out of college, or sort of young people that we've got working at the morning news, it's just, you know, it's a nightmare, you know, compared to what I was able to sort of just dumbly. And, you know, beyond luckily to sort of lope my way into. Um, but, yeah, so I copy editing and then just was working on fiction in the mornings and trying to, you know, at first it was I wanted to be Haruki Murakami. And then I wanted to be Iris Murdoch and then Philip Roth and then back to Iris Murdoch. And so, like, you know, and then just step, started hopscotching between people that I just really admired and loved the hell out of their books. So but that's that's quite a bit of discipline, though. I mean, you, you're getting up, like, what time in the morning? Like 5 o'clock in the morning to write? Yeah. Uh, originally, it was more like in the sixes because I didn't have to be at work until ten. Because okay. uh, you know, dot com. Um, so yeah, sixes, and then these days it's five, and it's sort of like it's gotten pulled back basically to five. I think I don't. I didn't start waking up until five until I was in Paris. But yeah, around six. Okay, so you get up that early, you write for like two, three hours. Is that the way? That yeah, it goes? like two hours. Yep. And then, um, are you able? I mean, obviously, you're able to find. Um, uh, enough concentration. Like, does the compressed amount of time actually help you focus? Do you think? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, those two hours, I'd say 90 minutes of it was sitting in a chair and not, you know, p- producing anything that was worthwhile. You know, a lot of it, I think, just had, I think if I was doing anything right, it was the fact that I wasn't getting out of the chair. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I spent, so I'm working, I'm writing in the morning, spent two years, I wrote a novel, and it was horrible. I mean, a lot of it was me teaching myself how to write fiction and trying to, you know, emulate books that I've got lying around and, you know, I would take out like, and I chose the worst examples, you know, I like grab light in August and be like, okay, I'm going to copy out, you know, a couple pages from light in August. Like who the fuck wants, thinks it's a good idea to try to learn how to write from, you know, a Faulkner masterpiece, <laughs> um, dumb, dumb move, Herman. But, um, but yeah. And so then, and after that, I wrote another novel and that one also, that one got me an agent and he sent it out to a bunch of publishers, but, we got rejection notices from all of them. Some of them very polite and nice, sure. and like long, sure. you know. But, and were you yeah. just? I mean, and how how did you take that? Did that crush you? The the first one being a piece of shit didn't crush me. The second one being uh, so widely rejected, yeah, it was awful. It was it was very uh, discouraging. Uh, I mean, I started my next novel right right away afterward, but I was. I mean, you know, I was totally in a fucking, you know, pit because of it. Um, and I don't think I was that much fun to be around for a couple months. Well, okay. Was, now, you know. and so here's the thing, though, because you did, you did get right back up. You dusted yourself off and you kept going. Uh, and you seem like, uh, I don't know, you just see, like, you're, are you a depressive person? You don't seem like it. Like, a lot of writers yeah, are, yeah. but you seem like you have, like, a, 
a fairly cheerful disposition. Like I, I think I think I'm, I think on balance, I'm a pretty just sort of mellow person. Yeah. Uh, so you know, so, I have dips, I have highs, but you know, I'm not. I'm certainly not prone to depression. And knowing people who have, you know, real like disease depression, I'm you know, I'm. I'm not that either. Sure. Um, sure. But so, so the question then becomes like, you know, because I've talked to writers on both sides of that, of that spectrum. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what I am. Like, I think I'm a little depressive, but nothing like too serious. Okay. But, but you know, every writer I have to imagine because of the, the amount of rejection that you have to go through and right. just because of just the rigors of it. Like, how do you find the energy? Like, is it, is it just like a compulsion that you can't control? Are you a really competitive person? Like what, what went through your head like after that rejection, the one that hurt, and yeah. in between that moment and then getting up and starting the next book? You know, I don't know. I was going to ask you, in terms of your depression, it, it's sometimes like a measure of like, well, what's your relationship with alcohol? How do you feel about alcohol? You know, at what point does alcohol play an important role in the day. And like, I really mean like what minute, like there's a minute, like five Oh four. Um, you know, for me, like it's, it's kind of a, uh, kind of desire to say like, fuck you to people who, you know, sort of like that, that like didn't like think I could pull this off, but I couldn't do this. Um, it was, you know, it's, it's probably along the same lines. I didn't do an MFA program and I don't have anything against MFA programs like whatsoever. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's the right thing to do. But for me, it wasn't, you know, it was something, it was another thing of being like, well, fuck that. Like, that's not how this is supposed to work. I'm going to go try and, like, you know, prove everybody that I can do this. So there's a little bit of a fuck you thing, and, and that's probably a competitive thing, you know. Um, and also, I don't know, sort of, sort of like, again, it was like, you know, I want to do something, and this is the thing that I seem to be kind of good at, and if I spend a lot of time, yeah, I guess maybe I'm an obsessive like, person. Yeah, right. yeah. No, I mean, I think you have to be. I don't think that it's like, because like, you know, I, I so, sort of like with tongue in cheek will uh, sometimes say that writing is a disease. Like that if you're actually yeah. a writer and you have the compulsion to write that, like it, it really is like it can seem that way anyway to me at times that if there's no way that it's not some sort of disease, like you have an illness right. well, and that's the way you manage it. Uh, but that might not be, that might be too unkind. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's probably too un- maybe a little unkind only because of how much of an you know this is not like like you must write or you go to the prison you know like it's you know we're all doing this for the heck of it. At some point, if it's not fun, it's like well, what the fuck are you doing? Like you know go you know go be an actor. Go find out what real depression is like. <laughs> uh, you know see see what rejection of your genetic material feels like emotionally. <laughs> um, but I think it's also I love working. Like I'm a, I'm, I just like working. You know, I, I grew up. My dad was constantly working. I think I probably emulated that a little bit. I'm sure the fact that I like to wear a trench coat comes from him wearing a trench coat every day when he's standing on the platform going to this job in New York City. Um, and so, you know, to be honest about it, it's probably just like if I hear about people that get like get lucky breaks or it sounds like they don't really put the work in, you know, um, I, I, I definitely think lesser of them um, because I don't think there are mat- that many things harder to do that require more sustained effort and concentration than writing a really good fucking novel. And I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm sure 600 years away from pulling that off, but when I see a really good book and I've read it and it's really worked its magic on me, I can almost always feel or sense the amount of work that went into it. Yeah. 
Yeah, like it's like not not a word is out of place, not a word is missing, like that whole feeling, you know, where it's just yeah. like, it's like airtight, you know. Exactly. And even even if it is a little bit sloppy, because I think that's one of the great things about the novel as a form is that it can be this sort of, you know, sloppy, blubbering, hoary beast. Like, you know, you know, we get away with 900 pages if we want to and people give us credit for it. Um, but, you know, those books inside them are creating, you know, this world. Now, I don't get that world sense from movies. I don't get it from short stories. I don't get it from the internet, you know, whatever other forms of art or entertainment that are out there, you know, painting, architecture, sculpture, blah, blah, blah. Only the novel, for me, makes me feel like I have entered into another consciousness. And I realize this may sound like, you know, sort of theoretical bullshit, but it's always been that way. You know, I've always wanted a novel over something else when it comes down to how am I going to spend my time. And I'm, I'm a TV addict. You know, I love poetry, I like paintings, I like movies. But, you know, in terms of what I think is the best, the hardest to pull off, and the most immersive, I choose the novel. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's hard to say. I think there's, it's probably tough in whatever field you go into, so you don't want to belittle. But, like, it's hard for me to imagine uh, a sustained work of art that's harder to produce than a good novel. But maybe. Yeah, I mean, we're not... I mean, I'm assuming that we're leaving burn notice to the side here, right? Like, we're not going to include burn notice in our conversation? Because <laughs> no. burn notice has some incredible moments. Yeah. Um, I mean, that guy, when he does a foreign accent, I mean, it's even, it takes it to a whole new level of non-acting. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I don't think, you know, I mean, there are uh, artists of other persuasions will, you know, root for their own team. But it's, it's you know, it doesn't work for me. Well, no, I, I remember, I mean, it's like, you know, it's it's very self-serving to... To love this, but I remember reading an interview with Don DeLillo. I think it was Don DeLillo from a while back, and he was talking about uh, novelists and how, like, he's like, yeah, the best the, the best artists always become novelists, you know, in a generation. And I was like, yeah, mm. yeah, you know, like, yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, um, I'm thinking to myself, well, then that must, you know, he must be referring to himself. It's weird how, like, embedded in that. Right. Uh, it's like a huge. You can't get away without the self-reference. Yeah, yeah but exactly. you know, man, I swear to God, like, there's a flip side of the coin, and the flip side is people who abuse that, who do turn out the 900 pages of, you know, of wank, of just, you know, they get away with being sloppy, they're not putting that much thought and concentration to it, that they're getting away with saying, oh, I chose that character's decision based on just a gut feeling about what I was feeling that day when I was feeling my way through my novel. And you're like, you know what, fuck you, you know, like get some intellectual balls um, and, you know, do the work that everyone else has done before you. Because when I reach that novel and I am 400 pages into it and the novelist has given up on their, like they've gone as far as they can, but I've still got 500 pages to go, I will huck that book. Like I have no, you know, like get rid of it, throw it away, burn it. Like who gives a shit? That person left me halfway through a novel and gave up. Um, so, okay, so now I'm hearing myself. I might have... <laughs> Too uh, intense a connection with you know with books, but whatever. Hey, you know that's why we're doing this podcast and not Mark Marin or you know some some other genre of what people do with their spare time, since none of us live in prison camps. Right. Well, and you say you, you say you, with you 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 know you will throw a book across the room if it's uh yeah you know if, if the author gives up on it or whatever. Like, do you find that you often do not finish books you start? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, me too. 
I have friends. I, mean, I have friends who like compulsive. Or it's like compulsive uh, in the other direction. Like they they cannot they start. They have to finish no matter what. And, you know, there's not enough time. There's too many books, uh, and frankly, there's too many good books. Um, you know, and, and we're never going to get to all of them. We're not even going to get to a small percentage. And if you you know stick it out with something that you know is just uh, is a misery, you know, what are you doing? Like, you know, why push yourself through it? It's not going to get better. You know, I mean, it, of course it might, but odds are no. Especially with something you know contemporary that hasn't really had to stand the test of you know time or being rediscovered or whatever. Um, which is a horrible endorsement of contemporary literature, but, you know, there really are so many good books constantly coming out that, you know, I, I, I will give every book 100 pages, um, and then I will chuck it. I will give it 100 pages. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean it's good to hear you say that because I, I, to- I totally agree. Like, I, I, I sometimes hear uh, people complaining about how there's not enough good books, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, there's, right, too, there's exactly. almost too many. You know, like there's way too many. It makes me anxious because I'm never going to be able to read them all, you know? Yes, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and, there, and there's no time. I mean, you don't even have enough time to, you know. I mean, also, if you don't watch Burn Notice, you know, then I may you might have a little bit more time. But like, you have all the other shit going on in your life, so you know, you need to squeeze it in. Well, so okay, and you say that you love to work, and you say and you talk about time management, uh, yeah. And you write early in the morning for you know a couple hours every day. Are you a seven day a week guy, or do you take? Time I'm, I'm, a, I'm a five day a week guy. Okay. Um, I can't do the seven. The, right. the, the, I would love to, but I can't. I don't. I don't have that temperament. I need to sleep late on the weekends. Also, that's like that's that's the way I get away with not sleeping for five days a week. Is I crash on Saturday and Sunday. Okay. Also, I don't have children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Which, yeah. You know, everyone out there who you know is listening to this and is like, ah, oh, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> I'd like to say I might be an asshole, but I do get away with not having children. <laughs> do you have plans? I mean, is that is that on the horizon? You think at some point or? Uh, the answer to that which can go on the record is not today, not which today. is to say that my wife and I, um, you know, it's, uh, I can only go so far on the record with this, but let's just say the answer is not today. And who knows what tomorrow will bring. You never know. Okay. You never know. Um, you never know. all right. Well, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about the morning news. Yes. Um, so you were in New York, you were out of college, you were working at a web company, you were a copy editor. Um, yep. you had some lucky timing in terms of the job market and what kind of opportunities were available to you. Yep. Uh, so how did it how did it get to this point then? How did you transition into running the morning news and all the rest? So at that job, there was a guy named Andrew Womack doing the exact same job as me, uh, and we would do this little newsletter that we would email around to other employees. Uh, that was just our favorite things that were on the web that day. Some of it pertaining to our work, so that way our bosses didn't mind us doing it, and other just shit that we found on the web we thought was interesting. And we called it the morning news because it would, you know, people would get it in their inbox at 9 a.m. or whatever. Um, then our boss left, and he said, hey, you guys should put that on a website because I can't get those emails anymore since it's out of the company email. And at that time, Blogger software had just launched. Um, so we're like, oh, okay, well, here's an easy way of making a website. And so it started off for the first year, this is 99, as just like a link blog of us putting the stuff that we were doing for our company up on a website. And then... Shortly after, I think it was shortly after 9-11, uh, we, both of us, really love magazines. We love zines. We love sort of just indie stuff that you could find at the record store. You know, the little Xerox magazine. It was just something that we both thought was cool. And we wanted to publish our own. And a friend of us dared us to start publishing one edited story a day. And then it just has sort of just, you know, grown from there. 
yeah. So now we've got, I mean, we've got like like twelve editors and you know all these contributing writers. I think you know the one thing that we try to do is we try to edit things as good as possible. We try to publish the best writing we can find, and we try to edit the hell out of it so it comes across as super pro, even though it's a couple people you know doing a lot of stuff over email. Right, right. Well, and how much time do you spend on it? Um, a couple hours a day. Yeah. I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and that is a weekend, you know, I've been, but it's, it's like playing in a band. Like I do it because, you know, because it's fun and it's, I've gotten to become great friends with all these people and me and Andrew have somehow not managed to kill each other over all this time. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a lot of fun to do it. And it's still satisfying that the pleasure of doing something that's collaborative, which writing isn't, and being on the flip side of publishing, you know, of actually publishing other people that I think are great and I admire and I really want to, you know, see their work, you know, discovered by other people. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and like, what is your take on where things are uh, in publishing with regard to uh, the digital and, you know, as much all the changes that things seem to be going through? Like, do you have any, like, really clear, articulate sense of it or is it sort of uh, like the rest of us where you're kind of just watching what's happening and trying to <laughs> you know, cut through the fog? Uh, the, the, the second option, yeah. the option to, and supersize it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, who knows where it's going? I think it's exciting. I think there's better stuff being published than I've seen before, but there were, you know, there were generations though. I don't know if you can say generations yet with regard to the internet. There was a generation of internet magazines that came first, you know, like suck and speed and word, uh, you know, that did a great job of putting out pro material, well edited, topical, interesting, you know, and, it, and there were new forms. Um, so, you know, since we're in the middle of trying to create these new forms, I don't know where it's going, but it is, you know, it's fun on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, just to, to shift gears uh, quickly, did you sell uh, French rights to this memoir? Uh, not as of yet. I was going to say, because it seems like you, sh you should be going over there for book tour. It should happen. This has to it happen. It should happen. <laughs> Brad, make it happen. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, send the jet. I'm, I will be ready. I will have, you know, my my trench coat on. Are you going to go on a book tour in, in, in the States? Are you going to do some? There is. There is. What's happening there? Well, we, the book comes out April 24, and then I'm doing uh, three nights in New York, then Connecticut, Boston, and then I think it's, uh, Miami, Oxford, Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Tulsa, uh, San Francisco, L.A., uh, Seattle, Portland. And there might be some others, but yeah, Tulsa, Tulsa, what, Oklahoma. How's that happening? Just there, I think there's some great bookstore there that uh, has the hookup where they like bring writers in to do events. I don't know that much about it. I'm just excited to go see Tulsa. Yeah, that'll be great. So you know, the now, beaches of Tulsa. <laughs> so now, are you working on anything new? Yeah, I've been working on a novel for about a year, and it's going really slowly, and it's like driving me crazy. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm working right. on a novel. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, uh, I'm doing that too right now. It's beating me up over the head. I was just working on it this morning, and uh, is it you know it's like so? This is where I, let's commiserate a little bit. Like if I'm yeah. re if I'm reading this thing and I'm thinking to myself like, what the fuck is this? Like that's normal, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Every day. Every day. I, uh, yeah, I mean, like you need to like like I think the job for for us is that we need to be able to get up at the end of the day and not throw the file into the trash icon. Yes. You know, yes. there's no, there's no day that goes, that finishes well. 
Well, but sometimes, um, sometimes you can read it and you can be like, yes, like this is good. And then like, it's, yeah. it's, it's the schizophrenia of it. Like, you know, like one day you're hot, the next day you're, you read it and it's just like ice cold. And it's, it's such a right. weird experience that you have to kind of weather, you know? It, it's, it's totally bizarre. I don't know who else, you know, has this experience in their work life. Probably plenty of other disciplines. But, you know, I, I will get, I will, you know, like I'll go back through You Lost Me There. And there are literally, I think there are like three great sentences in that book that I'm excited about. And I'm not like not in the book. I think it's, you know, it's an okay book. But like when I look back on it and people are like, what do you like about that? I'll be like, well, there's this great sentence. <laughs> I can point to it and they're like, that's not that good. And I'm like, oh, look, for me and knowing how I got to that sentence and what that sentence meant that day, that's a great sentence. Yeah, no, because I'm kind of the same way. Like I don't, I mean, I, I might be even a little bit harsher on my own book, but like I look back on my novel and I'm like, it's hard for me to look at yeah. it. And I think, I mean, yeah. I think that's common, but I think there are authors that are maybe more well adjusted about that sort of stuff than I am. But like it, I, I can pick up my book, which I try not to do because I don't want right. to like wallow in that. But if I pick up my book and I open it uh, to any page and I start reading, it causes me like physical pain. <laughs> yeah. I, I know the exact feeling. I think, you know, I think actors who like watch themselves like on film say the same thing. Like they can't be in the room. Like I can't, I mean, someday maybe, you know, I hope so. In the way that I look back on stuff that I wrote in second grade about, you know, the guy in the mouth of the cave um, that is, you know, fighting the dragon. Yeah. Um, I actually wrote that story in sixth grade. Uh, it might be the, it might be like one of the two last short stories that I wrote. Uh, this was in sixth grade, and it won a contest. It was submitted in the state of Connecticut. Um, I want to point out that everyone who su- entered that contest also won. So I don't know what criteria they were judging by, but I was one of like 278, you know, sixth graders in an auditorium outside Stanford, you know, going up to collect their certificate. Well, that's good though. You know, it gives you a little boost of confidence. You know. Look, yeah, I've still got the certificate. What does that say? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, think you, I think you take every award they'll give you as a writer. I don't care where it comes from, you know. Fucking bring it on, Uruguay. <laughs> no, there's a committee out there that needs me. Yeah. They didn't know it yet, but... <laughs> Uh, well, this has been really fun, man. I really appreciate it, and uh, I wish you all the best with the book coming out, and the tour, and the novel, and the morning news. Uh, am I forgetting anything? And and also with your fashion uh, choices, I know that that's uh, yeah, it can be stressful. And I just uh, you know, I wish you peace. <laughs> I look, I, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was truly a lot of fun, and I have to go out now and meet. This guy who's like a novelist, he's got a bunch of books out, and I don't know what I'm going to wear. So, yeah. I mean, do you have any options? Are there are there various options laid out on your bed or anything? Or? I've, I'm, I'm like I've got, I'm like looking at a t-shirt, being like, are you a guy who wears a t-shirt or like? <laughs> You wear a golf shirt? Like, what do you wear? No, I know that. I, feel, I know that feeling sometimes. Where I'll be like, "Yeah, you, you should wear a t-shirt because, like, this is more of like an indie situation. You don't want to dress up too much." The guy, you know, right. I go through that too. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know, man. If worst comes to you know, worst case scenario, I guess you can just flip a coin. <laughs> that's true. I've done that yeah, before. I'm not even okay. kidding. I'm not even kidding. Like when I just can't decide, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to let the coin decide, and that's how I do. If it comes down to it, I'm taking that advice. All right, Rose Krantz. Well, listen, man. Uh, thank you so much, and best of luck. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Okay, everybody, that's the program. That's Rosecrans Baldwin. Go check him out at rosecransbaldwin.tumblr.com. Uh, the book is called Paris, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down. It's out from FSG as of April 24th. Rosecrans is on the Twitter. His handle is at Rosecransb, and you can also find him on the Facebook. 
Once again, I want to give a plug to our sponsor, the UCLA Extension Writing Program. If you're working on a novel or a collection of short stories or a screenplay of some sort and you want some instruction or some structure or some camaraderie, go sign up for a class. You can attend classes right here in Los Angeles in person or remotely via the internet. Either way works, and there's no time like the present. For more information, call 310-825-9415. Again, that's 310-825-9415. Or you can visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers or check them out on Facebook or the Twitter. This show is on the web. It's at otherpeoplepod.com. It's on Twitter. Follow it. I'm on Twitter. Follow me. You know the drill. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, this particular episode, I got to say, it makes me a little nostalgic for Paris. Uh, what a great city. I don't care what anyone says. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And even though I did not fully assimilate, uh, I did spend a summer there in my youth, however awkwardly. And for that, uh, I, am in, I am grateful. And uh, I hope to get back there at some point. And I want to take my daughter there uh, when she's like 12. That's sort of a goal of mine. And uh, believe it or not, I get this from Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, I remember reading some magazine article and she was talking about how her dad took her to Paris when she was 12 and, uh, he did it. Uh, he told her because he wanted her first memory of Paris to be with a guy that would always love her, which is like really sort of sweet. And, uh, he, you know, he wanted to protect her so that she wouldn't go to Paris for the first time later in life with some guy that she was dating who would later turn out, uh, to be not such a good guy. And then, uh, the relationship would implode thereby ruining Paris by association. And uh, it's just too good of a place to be ruined, and it's too big of a risk to take, and I feel like I have to do something about it, and uh, I have to protect my child. And uh, I'm probably overthinking this. So anyway, that's it. That's the end. This uh, This is the end of the show. This is the part where we say goodbye. Please remember that Sigmund Freud once attended a lecture by Mark Twain and that Leo Tolstoy kept a portrait of Charles Dickens on the wall in his study. I will be back again soon with another conversation with another author. Thank you very much for listening. Merci beaucoup et à bientôt.